Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. We have a beloved overture, an iconic tone poem, and a rarely played concerto, all filling the bill for your Rochester Philharmonic this week. So to break it all down, we have RPO Music Director Ward Steer. Welcome in, Ward. Nice to see you as always, Julia. And returning to our fair city, the prodigious pianist. Stephen Huff. Welcome back, Stephen. Thank you, Julia. Great to be here. So nice to have you here. So let's start, um, if you will, with a little stuff about the overture, which is Brahms' tragic overture. So what's the tragedy here? (laughs) Well, it's a little misleading. The, The overture itself doesn't follow any particular narrative. It's not connected that I'm aware uh, to any specific story, but he wrote uh, the Tragic Overture at, I think, roughly the same time as the Academic Festival Overture, and he just thought the character of it, uh, you know, is much more weighty, much more, you know, sort of stormy uh, than the predominantly sunny and cheery Academic Festival Overture, so he thought, just to sort of point out that difference in the contrast, he would call it the Tragic Overture. And in fact, he once said, one laughs while the other one cries. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I have seen that quote. It's true. Um, and it's it's a good, very good sort of standalone piece. It's almost like a an excerpt from a symphony that was never written, although he does quote uh, from the Second Symphony a little bit in the, in the piece, which you'll probably catch if you're familiar with the Second Symphony. Um, but you know, it's it, it's a long, it's on the long side for overtures. Uh, it's over ten minutes, um, but it's it's very Brahmsian. You hear that warmth, you hear that passion, you hear that fire, and the lyricism. And of course, pairing Brahms with Dvorak is always a good yeah. a good match. So I think it sets us up nicely. In fact, we'll talk about that because the piano concerto, the Dvorak piano concerto, Stephen was modeled a little bit on the Brahms on, on Brahms stuff. I wasn't aware of that, actually, Julia. But, I mean, certainly Brahms was a great support to Vorjak. I think he um, did some editing for him, didn't he, actually? Yeah, he did. Sort of proofreading. Uh, I rather wish he'd done some proofreading on this concerto, <laughs> actually, I have to say, because um, it, it presents a lot of challenges. I mean, first of all, it's one of the hardest um, pieces physically for the pianist to play. Not because, like Liszt, you're racing all over the keyboard, because you're not but because he wasn't a pianist and um, he couldn't have written a more awkward piano part if he tried. <laughs> and I must say, when I was learning this piece, there were many moments when I thought, is this really worth it? But then I always thought, yes, it is, because it's one of the great lyrical piano concertos, along with, say, the Schumann, which I think it's most similar to. I think the Brahms is a much more heroic, I mean, both of them. Perhaps it has something to do with the second um, but it has this kind of lyrical soul. It's actually the same instrumentation as the Schumann Concerto, identical. And I just think it's one of those pieces that, that draws you into its warm world rather than pushing itself out at you. It, it, it's an enveloping kind of piece, not a confrontational piece. This is rarely done. In fact, we have seven recordings of this in our library, all told, and four of them are Rudolf Berkushny. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody yeah. does this. Oh, and one of them is you. Yeah, I recorded a few years ago, yeah. Why would you do that? Well, because very few people have recorded it. And because, well, it all started when um, a friend in Singapore, well, two friends in Singapore said to me, you should learn the Vojak concerto. One of them was Singaporean and the other was Czech. And the Czech uh, was the principal violist of the orchestra. And he's a dear friend. And I sort of took a look at it and I thought, oh, well, someday, you know, maybe. And, 
Uh, and then I was, I, I was looking through it one day, and I mentioned to an old friend of mine, a very sophisticated, wonderful musician who teaches in Edinburgh, and he said, oh, the Vorjic, he said, it's probably my favorite piano concerto. And I, must, I was driving at the time, and I must say I nearly swerved off the road because I thought, <laughs> well, that is a really either very eccentric choice or there's something there that I'm missing. So that started me thinking about this piece. And I think one of the problems, well, there are many reasons why it's not played. One is that it's very difficult, so you do have to put in the time. The second is it doesn't sound difficult, which is not a great combination, <laughs> really. And the other is, and I think this has been a problem for the last 20, 30 years, is that when people, when you mention it to people and they, they go and look at, at the recordings, they see uh, Richter and Kleiber, which is the famous recording of this. Now, Richter writes in his diaries that he really felt this was not a good recording. They were neither of them at their best. He was very disappointed. He said, we didn't get the spirit of the piece. Carlos was fussy. I was in a bad mood. It goes on and on and on about this piece. But this, of course, doesn't appear on the cover of the CD. <laughs> so what happens is people say, oh, yes, I'll go and listen to this piece. They put that recording on. They don't have a great experience listening to it. And they think, oh, it's not a good piece. So this is, is one of the problems. You know, people are also incredibly divided about this piece. Yeah, it's very polarizing. People adore it. I mean, Ivan Fischer mentioned to me that he thought it was the equal of Brahms concertos. Uh, Andras Schiff just absolutely. In fact, he was so excited when I, I met him um, at a party and, and mentioned I was working on this. And he, he was so thrilled that four days later arrived in the post a facsimile of the manuscript Oh. with a little note saying, I'm so happy that people are playing this, you know, please, we need to get this piece. I mean, this is real evangelism, you yeah. know. And yet there are conductors, now, now I won't mention any names. Um, one conductor said, oh, I think it's a dreadful piece. I'll never do it again. I did it a couple of times. Awful, you know. And uh, famous names. Um, but uh, you're not going to drag them out from me until the, the, the switch there says off. <laughs> <laughs> so let's turn our, our uh, ears to you for a second, Ward. Why did you want to have this on your programming and what do you as a conductor think about this well <clears throat> if i had to be totally honest uh which i always am in these podcasts of course i'd say that it wasn't my choice uh, it was steven's suggestion but uh i am a huge fan of steven's we've worked together before in st louis and actually we did tchaikovsky's second piano yeah. concerto which is another one that's not very often done um and so i was i was thrilled to have steven uh come on our season this year and when uh, we got the word that he wanted to do Dvorak I said yeah let's go for it I, I love Dvorak I did not know this concerto um, so I was excited to learn it and um, I have to say at first it didn't reveal everything right away but after living with it for a little bit I'm starting to sort of see the real beauty and the real subtlety and the, the lyricism that Dvorak is famous for and it really has so many moments um, that it's just it's great chamber music i mm. mean like the second movement in particular and yeah. places in the third um it really demands i think a, a really high level of musicianship to to really make it yeah. come to life um and i've always loved dvorak um I, I, and it reminds me a little bit we were talking earlier today um in some of the problems with the instrumentation and the orchestration of like the seventh symphony which is another one of my favorites but dvorak seven's not done as much as it should be yeah. And when you do it, and when I've done it in the past, I've had to, you know, tweak, add lines to different instruments mm -hmm. to sort of bolster it and fix balances yeah. and things. And and uh, Stephen knows this piece so well, he sent us a huge list of 
corrections of things to put into the score before we began this week, which was hugely helpful. Um, well, there were some inconsistencies there. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> as we were saying, we needed Brahms to come in. I mean, there are no inconsistencies ever in Brahms. It's astonishing. But he was a very careful proofreader, and Borjak wasn't. So there are little things like, you know, the, 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 the winds might be playing something staccato, and the strings are playing the same material legato. And then five bars later, um, the, the staccatos disappeared. Now, did he m leave it out, or did he want a very different sound then? And you, you have to be a little bit of a mind reader sometimes um, and, and say, well, you know, is, is there a sort of a, a precedent for this earlier in the piece? Or and think through it. And when something really doesn't work, when a line, there's a line in the second violins that, that he writes pianissimo, and he has the piano playing big arpeggios forte. Well, there's just no way that that line can be heard. So what do you do? You, you can't actually play the arpeggios softly because they're obviously written as a virtuoso flourish. So you have to bring up the, the second violin. There's little details like this. But once you've put in that work, I think the piece then does uh, does shine and, and, and has a, a special beauty. And, and Ward mentioned the second movement. I think this is the, the sort of the highlight in many ways of the piece, the one that people will maybe remember. It's a very mysterious mm -hmm. I, I think of it a bit like walking through a forest because, and getting slightly lost. It has these strange five-bar phrases that just come to a halt, like you stop in your path and you think, well, where am I going to go next, you know? But then finally, at the end of the movement, it, he it continues this material into this never-ending phrase, and it goes on and on, and it doesn't stop anymore. And there's something very, very touching about that. This is um, a piece that is not specifically one of those piano versus orchestral pieces. This is more symphonic than it is concerto-esque. Having said that, does that mean that your orchestral line is more symphonic than it would be in your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill romantic piano concerto? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there are lots of passages where, you know, we have counter-melody to something Stephen's doing or or we have the tune and he's got embroidery and things like that. So in that sense, I think it's it's more organic maybe than the classic, you know, accompanying, I'm using air, air quotes, um, concerto situation. But, you know, you get that in Brahms, too. Mm -hmm. You get that, I mean, you get that in, uh, you start to get that a little bit, I think, in the later Beethoven concertos, mm -hmm. and then it sort of grows from there. So I yeah. think it fits right squarely in with all those romantics. There was one pianist who did actually did rewrites on it on the piano mm. part. Do you ever use that, Stephen? <laughs> no. Well, some. Uh, this is a man called Wilhelm Kurtz, yes. and I think it was in the 1920s. He was a Czech pianist, and he decided this, that this piece was was never played, and so he was going to rewrite it really and make it into a big virtuoso Listian type piece. So he doubled everything. He added. You know, where, where Vojak had one octave of, of arpeggios, he added four octaves. <laughs> of, and it's, I, I, I think it's a little bit like, you know, it's a very earthy, peasant-ish, in, in the very best sense of the word piece. It, it, it comes from, from the folk music, from the earth, and it's honest. And, and Kurtz took it to the city, and he put <laughs> makeup on it and a wig and fancy shiny boots and then said, look, here's Mr. Vorjak. And, you know, and I feel that the piece feels awkward. It feels like Vorjak is saying, I don't belong in this suit. It's, I'm, you know, <laughs> put me back in my farmer's boots. I don't want these <laughs> ballet shoes. So I think this is, and, and, and then it fell out of favor probably by around the 1970s. And Fokushny began his recording career recording that version. 
And then at the end of his life, he'd gone back to the original version. I think he also then felt that it, it was out of fashion. Because if Kurtz had made a successful romantic concerto, that would be one thing, but he didn't really. He doesn't really solve the problems at the heart of the piece. Now, there are a few clever little adjustments that Kurtz made, which um, I think all of us will incorporate, just little. It doesn't even alter the notes. It's just redistributions and things like that, which are very helpful. But on the whole, no, the Kurtz is just um, is best left in the libraries as a relic of history, really. So uh, this is... Um this is a question to you. How does this compare to Dvorak's other piano stuff? I know he wasn't a pianist, but he has some wonderful other piano music. So is that as awkward for you to play as this? Well, the, the pieces I've seen of his are, are much simpler anyway. They were written for the domestic market. You know, all composers, to make money, really, wrote these small piano pieces because the piano was in everyone's home and everyone wanted little pieces, whether it's Grieg or whether it was Mendelssohn, you know, they all wrote these little miniatures, and Vorjak wrote a lot too. Um, the piece I, I do know very well is the quintet, uh, and I've played it many times, and it is also awkward, but of course in that texture there's no sense of trying to write virtuoso music. I think this is the thing, Vorjak is trying in a way to write a concerto rather than just a collaborative piece. And so he feels the piano has to be center stage, and, and that's when, when he, he runs into problems. Uh, there is a, the music critic, uh, you remember, Harold Schoenberg, and he said, Dvorak wrote an attractive piano concerto in G minor with a rather ineffective piano part, a beautiful violin concerto in A minor, and a supreme cello concerto in B minor. Is that fair? Is it fair to call it an ineffective piano part? Well, it's unhelpful, let's say. <laughs> um, I, one would have to say the piano writing is ineffective, but I don't think you can say the piece is ineffective because it's actually a wonderful piece and it's, it's a well-written piece. It's, you know, he was a, a great composer, even if he wasn't always the greatest craftsman in the way he writes for the instruments. So, no, I don't think that, that's fair. And I think in the right hands, um, this piece can sound, um, you know, wonderful and it has no excuses need to be made for it. Is it in the right hands this weekend? I'm very happy. We've, well, we've had one rehearsal, so, um, but no, it's, it's actually was quite amazing how quickly things were, were falling into place and people adjusting, because I'm sure most of the members of the orchestra have never played it yeah. before and it's your first time, yeah. so... I was very, very happy. It's, yeah. a, it's a real treat, and I thank you for wanting to do it, because this is not one of these pieces that we in Rochester would get to see or hear on a regular basis. So it's really nice to have, have brought it in, yeah. although I imagine that when he said to Vorschach, you scratched your head a few times. No, no, no. I didn't scratch my head, but uh, uh, it's actually the three pieces that you mentioned. Um, I did for the first time the violin concerto a couple years ago, so now I've after this week, I can say I've done all th yeah. those concertos, which is great. You've completed the That's trilogy. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's finish off our little conversation um, with the last piece. Oh, that little piece? That thing. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. that, that tiny thing that we all like from the movie. Also sprach Zarthustra, which uh, was inspired by Nietzsche and his philosophy sort of maybe sort of ish i mean it says fry nach nietzsche at the beginning right so freely after nietzsche he you know automatic he right away strauss sort of s starts to qualify it like yes this is called also but it's not in any way a direct narrative and i think if you 
are trying to ascribe um, you know, some sort of linear logic to it. If you're familiar with the Nietzsche, that's you're not going to be successful because it's it's not it's not taken it's not meant in that way. I think Strauss um, it's kind of right in the middle of his evolution through the tone poems, um, and at this point uh, he hadn't, of course, yet written Heldenleben or Alpine Symphony or Domestica, but we have uh, pieces like Till and we have Don Juan and. Um, so he he was trying to expand this this genre, and he was very conscious, I think, of um, what Liszt had done. It's funny we're talking about Liszt, you know, in context of the piano writing too. But you know, Liszt, uh, the Liszt Wagner, that whole thing, and then the Brahms, uh, those two sort of lines of uh, progression musically uh, at the time in the late nineteenth century. Where I mean, Strauss was sort of right in the middle of that as a young composer coming up, um, and I think he he wanted to uh, somehow distinguish himself from, you know, pieces like Le Prelude and the, the tone, tone poems that Liszt was writing and say, no, this is, this is different. Um, but he didn't, he didn't mean for it to be, as I said, you know, a philosophical statement. I think the music is more, he's trying to capture moods, you know, and, and they're not all completely they're not always directly related. I mean, the sunrise is a perfect example. Yes, the Nietzsche starts with the, the image, you know, Zarathustra, you know, was after 30 years, you know, went up to the mountain, right? And then he saw the sun and decided it was time to go back down to humanity. So there's this great description of the sunrise in the beginning of, of the Nietzsche. And so, you know, Strauss writes the same thing. And, and in the music, he actually quotes the, I think it's the first paragraph from the original Nietzsche. It's, it's included in most scores. So you think, oh, okay, you know, literal depiction of a sunrise. This must be, you know, like in Heldenleben where he says the hero's life, the battle, all these things. Well, it's not so simple. He does give subtitles to many of the sections. But, you know, one is like a Tanzlied, you know, the, the dance. But there are two places in the Nietzsche where he talks about the, the dance, you know, and that's and people aren't sure if he means the first one or the second one or a little bit of both. Uh, there's the the dirge, you know. The mashup. Right. There's of science, you know, all these uh, sort of provocative titles that he gives to these sections. And, and you know, you can, you can have a lot of fun actually just being creative and trying to figure out ways that they connect. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, I think it's a mistake to think of it uh, so literally. It's, it's, more, it's more philosophical. It's a little bit more open for interpretation. But the thing that's brilliant about it, though, um, if you step away from the Nietzsche connection, is what he actually does with the music itself. It is like, uh, a just, uh, it's one of the most brilliantly orchestrated pieces I think ever written, and it's it's a masterclass in orchestration. Uh, if you look at what he does specifically with the string writing, I mean, he he calls for a very large string orchestra. So when you come this week, um, you'll see, you'll notice that we have expanded numbers of strings. He actually writes for 18 first violins, is what he asks for. Uh, we have 16 this week, but uh, we're able to cover all the parts. And there are moments where what we call divisi uh, in the strings, where not every musician in the first violin section is playing the same music. In fact, sometimes it's divided in um, you know, six different parts or seven different parts. There are solos for the concertmaster. There are also duets for the associate concertmaster and the concertmaster. There are moments where the two of them are playing independent music and then the stand right behind them is playing something completely different and then the fifth and sixth stand are playing something different and likewise in the second violins and in the violas and in the cellos and even in the basses there's this great fugue that he writes that starts with the 
fourth stand of cellos and the fourth stand of basses, so there are eight basses this week. We normally have seven, so we have an extra one. Um, and it just it builds very slowly, and you get one stand, then another stand. The voices join. It builds, and uh, it's it's absolutely stunning what he can do with this this string section. It's actually fun to watch too. Oh yeah, it's great it's because everybody is doing. I mean, think of a normal. Uh, time at the, you know, watching any, you can name any piece, standard repertoire, you know, first violins. Every now and then there'll be a Divisi where maybe there are two different things going on, but by and large they're playing the same music, that section, and the second violins, and, you know, it's, there's sort of a security in that, but um, for a piece like Zarathustra where everyone really has independent lines, it, it makes the orchestra so much more alive. There's like that buzzing energy because so many more people have individual responsibilities and it all has to come together. It's very intricate, but at the end of the day, it's so brilliantly written. I mean, there, and then the section, um, <clears throat> the the convalescent is what it's called, which is, I, I sort of scratched my head for a while at how that was, you know, connected to the music, but he writes simultaneously uh, instruments in the orchestra are playing in 3-2 time, so three half notes to a bar, and 9-4 time, which is still three big beats, but it's a subdivision of three quarter notes, three, three, and three in the 9-4, and then, you know, three half notes or two, two, and two quarter notes, you know, for the 3-2. And so for the conductor, I actually have the easiest job because I just swing my arms in a nice three, one, two, three, but the musicians have to be subdividing differently. Those in three two are thinking one two three four five six, and those in nine four are thinking one two three four five six seven eight nine. And he'll have rhythms, uh, in the same measure. Some instruments are playing a dotted, almost like Valkyrie sort of Wagnerian rhythm da 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 da. But if you're playing it in the three two, it's dun da 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 dun da 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 dun da 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 da. But if it's in the nine four, think one two three ba da ba da. It's faster. Mm-hmm. And they happen at the same time in very close proximity to one another. And it works if it's executed properly. But you have to really, really concentrate and, and bring all that out. And when you hear that intricate sort of tapestry that he's weaving with all these lines and the music and the rhythmic complexities, and it starts to lock and, and come to life, it's stunning. It's just so beautiful and brilliant. It's certainly probably the five most famous notes of any opening of any piece of music, at least to this day and age, for that piece. Would this piece have, have been as popular as it is? And this might sound like a dumb question, but 2001 <laughs> did awful lot to put oh, yeah. this one on the map in terms of everybody, not just the people who were wandering into the concert hall to see or hear Richard Strauss, yeah. but for those people who were, you know, going to see the Who in concert as well. <laughs> Would this piece have have the great love that it has today without that movie? Well, for, for a lot of people, certainly not. But the funny thing is that that lasts about a minute and a half, you know. <laughs> the whole piece is 35 sure. minutes. So people who know that and think they know Alzersprach, they have no idea uh, of the rest of the tone poem. But I always think, you know, there, there are two ways to think about that phenomenon. I, I'm grateful that Stanley Kubrick was, you know, had the brilliance to include not just that, by the way, all the other great music that's in that movie, 2001. It's It's phenomenal. But... Um, so it's good because it gets sort of into the awareness and the conscious 
and subconscious of you know the public um but at the same time you have to kind of forget about hollywood a little bit i mean it's i read i can't remember uh who wrote the article but it was fascinating just talking about the evolution of the public's relationship with this piece um and of course there's a big section on after 2001 and um the the author and i wish i could remember the name of the author but i can't at the moment but um made note of the fact that after 2001 both performances and recordings started to get longer people started in in other words hollywood sort of seeped yes. in and people started milking it a little bit more and doing the hollywood yeah. and i i think that is very yeah, interesting it's quite you know possible, yeah. um and and the opening for example um so we all know how it sounds there there's only one accent uh in that famous theme and it's just the 16th note pick up the bum bum it's that Bom, bom. The rest of it is unaccented, only forte, then it grows to fortissimo. So it really has to have the character of the sun just rising majestically and slowly. And then at the peak, it's just this beautiful, radiant, resonant sound, you know. But some sometimes I think um, people go overboard and they, they play Hollywood and yeah. it's da-da, you know. Yeah. And it's not that. The sun yeah. doesn't rise like that. The sun, you know, the sun doesn't need to wait for anyone. The sun is very... You know, it's got to have that sort of measured but also just completely natural feel about it. And then just the warmth uh, that you when the full sun is in the sky and it's hitting your face and you're just, you know, delighting in that energy and that those rays of, of you know, just beauty. Um, and then that theme comes back, though, later. Um, and it's, it's one of the stopping points where, you know, it's a big caesure and then there's silence. That's marked three Fs. And that's marked with accents, and it's very, it's very fast, it's very intense, and that's where you have to be brassy, and you have to sort of have a totally different character. But if you, you know, pull out all the stops, so to speak, and there is organ in this piece, also by the way, a pipe organ. Um, but if you do all of that in the beginning, you're sort of giving away that moment later, yeah. Yeah. and so you have to think about it. And I, and I think that's an example where maybe the Hollywood influence is um, not a positive thing for the piece. Well, I think often it isn't. I, I, I think about yeah. Elvira Madigan, the, what they call the Elvira Madigan. Yeah. It's not, it's Mozart. Mm -hmm. And that one got slower, too. Yes, yeah. true. Yeah, I mean, that's an andante in two, that movement. It yeah. really is quite, it's not a slow movement, really. Yeah. It's a very flowing yeah. one. Yeah, and it does take on a different character. It becomes, well, not just sentimental, but there's a kind of weight to it, which takes away from the touching nature, because that movement is mm -hmm. constantly shifting between sad and happy sad and happy you know with a major minor and, and if it's too slow you lose the flow between the two and it becomes too direct in a way mm -hmm. the best example um just popped into my mind of, of that phenomenon is the ride of the valkyries because people think that well a lot of people they either think it's you know elmer fudd kill the wabbit or you know that's mine or apocalypse now or whatever and you know that's all great and it's a catchy tune but I will never forget when I first heard it in context, and I mean the opening uh, of Act 3 in Valkyrie after you've sat there, and the conclusion of Act 2 is so gripping and compelling in Valkyrie, and then the curtain goes down, and you wait 30 minutes, but you're still kind of just amped up. Mm. And then when you realize that this is not about helicopters, and this is not about cartoon characters hunting fictional you know, animals, rabbits, this is about these warrior maidens who are swooping down on a battlefield and collecting fallen heroes to take them to their final resting place, Valhalla. It's just like all the hair on my body stood up the first time I experienced that in context, and I thought, oh, my God, this is so mm. powerful. And if you don't know that context, uh, 
uh, you'll, I mean, once you do know that context, you'll never listen to the Rod of the Valkyries in the same way. But it's just a shame. It, it's it's a blessing and a curse because I'm glad people know it, yeah. you know, because it's yeah. Wagner, and I'm glad that it's out there and people say, oh, that's the Rod of the Valkyries, you know. But I wish everybody could really know how amazing it is because, you know, yeah. it, it's it's taken it's like five percent of what it's worth when you just watch it in a cartoon. Yeah. When we go um, back for a moment to um, Alzo Sprach, Zarathustra, I love the way it ends. Oh. And, mm. and, and I love the fact that it's cyclical. It begins with the morning and it ends with the night. Mm-hmm. And, and it has this, it's a very complete piece. Yes, you get a feeling, I mean, from the sunrise, you go through all these adventures, some shadowy moments, darkness, light. There's a wonderful dance sequence that I was referring to before where, you know, it's it's very folksy. You feel like Zarathustra's down with the people, you know. Um, and then it gets it gets a little bit more, you know, introspective, philosophical, if I dare use that word in this piece, uh, at the very end. And there's also this great question. It's like the world riddle, you know. We read about that a lot associated with this piece and this work by Nietzsche. And he, he, he leaves us unresolved between... Um, two different keys at the very end of the piece and you hear and he got a lot of criticism for that at the end because you get a great uh major chord and then you get a note that has nothing to do with the chord the c at the end which of course is where we started everything so it's just it's amazing you 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 finish it and you're you're kind of like is it over what did what have we just been through was was my question answered or do I have more questions mm. now you know and it's yeah. I think it's a br- stroke of genius and you know Leonard Bernstein borrowed from it in West Side Story too mm. which is inter- a lot of composers have sort of uh, taken that from Strauss but I think he was one of the first to do that so uh, on a, a very different topic now I've been going to the concerts and I've been noticing that people are moving all over the place you've been shifting sections and oh. resect. Is is this a thing? Uh, have you decided to put the orchestra in a different place, or are you just trying stuff out here? Uh, well, um, it is a work in progress, and of course, every week there are different demands. You know, this week, for example, you'll notice the woodwinds are not on the same risers they're normally on, and that's to accommodate the positioning of the organ console and make sure that there are sight lines. With uh, with everyone in the brass, so that they can see. Are you gonna have to edit that? <laughs> That's never happened to us before in this. Make Why no? Huh? All right, so we go there and and uh, you was know that, that was calling? your no, that right. was Stevens Fan Club. <laughs> Are we gonna take a caller now? Yeah. On line <laughs> one. Oh my God! Oh, that's Jeff, great. Could you imagine? Right, what's your question? <clears throat> no, but caller um, number one. <laughs> but uh, I do like the antiphonal violins for a lot of repertoire. Not for every piece, but uh, it's good. And what I like most, though, that means when you have them on each side yes, of you, when the violins are split. Um, it's less about that for me, though, in this hall with this orchestra than it is about having the cellos more in the center and the and the basses, because I find in our hall it gives uh, much more center to the to the orchestra, you know, in terms of the resonance and also in terms of the rhythm, because when the basses and cellos are way over to my right as the conductor, sometimes it just is too far away from the timpani. It's too far away from the horns. It's too. And, you know, uh, speaking of Strauss, the first time I ever tried that was Heldenleben. Because a couple years ago, 
uh, because I because if you remember um, your fan club is it's, really it's, tenacious yeah, well, I, <laughs> I don't know whether to stop her you should just answer it see who it is um, <laughs> because you know the opening of that piece low strings horns and we had the horns set right up there so they were like almost in the same mm -hmm. section yeah. and it worked brilliantly uh, and a lot of people you know of course there are some who prefer the way they've sat for 15 20 mm -hmm. years and there yeah. are others who like the new setup and um, so you know do I get to ring in yeah, please. I like the new setup. Oh, you're just saying that. No, <laughs> no. If, if I were just saying it, it's well, because good. I brought it up. And well, it, I'm glad. I'm I like glad. it. It's um, it's fatter. It's a fatter, rounder sound. I well, that's what I'm going for. So I'm glad to hear you say that. There you go. You see, it really does work. Very I didn't good. even know what you were doing. I thought this sounds so much fatter and rounder. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's this huge debate. I have this conversation with one of the violinists. I think every other month, yeah. like, oh, my f holes are pointing the wrong way, and I can't be heard. I don't. I've talked to a lot of violinists who say that's nonsense. That the violin resonates, you know, yeah. like a like a Wi-Fi projector. It's not that f holes yeah. are not like speakers, folks. No. You know, it really it's yeah. a psychological thing. But some of them think they can't be heard as well because the f holes are facing. They can be heard just just it's fine. It's not true. So <laughs> we, and, and we now we finish off with you, Stephen, because you know you're Stephen, and the last time you were here, we talked about your blog, and we talked about. Um, you could make the case that classical music can be difficult, it can be dangerous, it can be disturbing. Mm -hmm. And now you're not writing your blog anymore. Right, well, a number of things. I mean, one is that the newspaper where I was writing, it stopped all the blogs. They just had oh. a, a, an executive decision. Um, so, and then they deleted everything. So, there were, I mean, that's very unusual for the internet because normally nothing huh. gets deleted. I mean, people want to delete their <laughs> Facebook photographs from <laughs> 10 years ago and they, but then, and of course, I, I was a little annoyed because I, I'd written over 600 articles and they were all gone. I mean, I'd kept some of them myself. But then I thought, ah, but that means that no one can read this, which means I can use the material again. <laughs> and so I have a book coming out in the autumn, actually. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Uh, well, he, actually, in the UK in, in, December, in um, August and then here with Farah Strauss and Giroux in the early new year called Rough Ideas. And I've taken about a quarter of those posts, so not not everything. And uh, so that's that's it. It's going to so things that you will have read there will. I've changed everything. You know, nothing's actually exactly as it was, but it was good basic material to work with. And are you going to do a book tour? I'm not sure. I I have the time, or <laughs> I don't know. Desire. No, I don't. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but probably there'll be some events will happen as I'm playing with orchestras because most of the the uh, articles in uh, um, chapters of the book are about music. So there are lots of things. Although it was very much tied to that time, and I'm conscious. You know, I was playing a lot of Rachmaninoff, a lot of Tchaikovsky, and so I talk a lot about those composers and about playing them. But Dvorak is in there. So uh, there is a mention of that. So, yeah. You tend to, well, soloists tend to be cyclical in what they're touring with. So you've got, obviously, you're, you're on a Dvorak binge these days. What, what do you think your next sort of thing you want to do is? I've been doing a lot of non-musical things. I had a novel come out last year, which was um, a lot of fun. Um, I, I mean, actually, the, the nicest thing that happened about it was that the the Bay Area reporter said that it was the best sex writing of 2018. Whoa. Oh, I gotta get on this one. <laughs> so I, I was rather pleased by, <laughs> never mind reviews of concerts and record <laughs> CDs, but to have, yeah. 
So I, I was kind of um, hugely amused and chuffed by that. So uh, it's called The Final Retreat, in case anyone fancies seeing what um, those particular reviewers saw in it. And it's not autobiographical, I hasten to add. Um, <laughs> but it, it is very, very explicit, I have to say. So not for the under 18s, but that was fun to do. So I want to do more write. I'm writing more music now. Um, I'm still playing concerts, but of course, um, that's still the center of my life. But um, there are other things that are taking up that extra time where I might have learned a Dvorak concerto or a Scharvenka concerto or things like that. And of course, you're tweeting an awful lot. And uh, should you decide to follow Stephen, be aware that he puts up a lot about food. I've well, most people do. Uh, food yeah. is the is the sort of social media common currency, isn't it? I, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of the political snark gal. <laughs> you know, when when I tweet, that's that's where I I tend to to line in. Well. I just don't know where I would end if I started there political <laughs> tweeting because there's just so many things one could say. And it's so depressing so much of the time that I just decided to, to step aside a little bit from that. Because everyone loves food. So there you yeah. go. Thank you both for coming in. It has been such a pleasure to have you back in town, Stephen. We look forward to Thank the you, concert. Thank you. Always, always, Ward. I'm Julia Figueres, and again, thank you to Stephen Huff and Ward Stair for stopping by. If you would like some information about the Rochester Philharmonic season, you can go to rpo.org. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.